criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. host for criminal behaviorology, Timothy Joseph. This is a great way to start out the new year, 2022. Have not had a podcast in a while. Been rather busy. Sorry about that. But I think I have made up for it with this great guest, uh, Dr. Brandon Green, and his work on Behavior Analysis, Metrics and Applications for the Preservation and Reunification of Families. This is Volume 1, Behavior Analysis in Child Welfare. This started out as a discussion about the, uh, the many applications of behavior analysis in child custody and other areas involving children. And I came across this book with a a little bit of help from some people interested in the area. And I was pleased to have Dr. Green agree to an interview. He's worked for over 40 years in dealing with child maltreatment, family preservation, and a host of other areas of great interest to those working to improve our society. A cogent, entertaining, and data-driven book is the end result of he and his colleagues' work in some of the most challenging settings you can think of. Along with a good sense of humor, Dr. Green provides a range of techniques and instruments to assist the most vulnerable in our communities using behavior analysis as the guide. A little bit of strong language, cover your ears if you need to, but uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun speaking to him. He tells it like it is and also uh, provides some really useful pieces of advice for uh, behavior uh, analysts in all areas that they're working. So I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over, uh, Have uh, start with the interview with Dr. Green. Write back, go to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. And put in there if you have any interest in uh, any other areas. The views of our guests do not uh, necessarily represent the views of criminal behaviorology nor any of our sponsors, if we had any sponsors. But I did enjoy Dr. Green's views, and I think you will too. Let's have a listen. You know what the problem is? What is it? You're a potophile. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Too too much. Said as a pedophile, but you are a pedophile. Yeah, I don't even like the sound of that, but uh, you know. I know it's not good, is it? <laughs> it's not nothing close to that is is good, but <laughs> it just occurred to me, you know. Yeah. On well, these podcasts, I'm, I'm not a big fan, so I think people must be into pedophilia or something. Yeah, it's That's gotten a, out of hand. I mean, it's like it over, over a million. I thought. I'd be a unique person, but you're never a unique person. There's always, you know. I'm sure you're unique, but yeah. the potophilia is, is rampant. So. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, this is fantastic, man. I, I, I'm i trying to record this audio. I, I think I was recording both WebEx and Zoom, but I think Zoom's recording, and I don't know. 
We'll see what it does. Yeah, we'll see. We'll give it our best shot. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And yourself? I'm I'm doing okay. I'm I'm sorry about all that. If it uh, if it was a lot of trouble. Well, it's it's, it's no worry. I'm always a little uh, a little dubious about kind of new video audio apps because, uh, as I said, my computer just doesn't play very well with them. But uh, that's okay. We're good. Okay. Well, uh, were you going to ask me some quiz questions? <laughs> well, I could. Uh, I mean, why in the hell would you even want to be interested in, in the problem of child maltreatment? Uh, I uh, just stumbled across this. I, I'm with the um, ABAI uh, Crime Delinquency and Forensic uh, Behavior Analysis SIG. And uh, I think uh -huh. somewhere in the conversation of all this potophilia stuff, I mentioned something about um, child custody being the most common use of forensic psychology. And, uh, okay, is anybody involved in child custody? And someone led me to your book, which I had That's never true. come across before. Um, okay. And so, you know, uh, I went ahead and, and got it. You gave me a discount. And, yeah. uh, but, uh, I really think it's, uh, I think it's a, a wealth of information. It's got so much, not everything am I into it about, but it's got a lot of really good stuff in it. So that's, that's why I'm interested in it. And, and I was going to save this, I was going to save this for later, but I think I'll ask it now. A whole lot of people ask about, um, branching out beyond autism. In fact, I hear it almost every day. You, sure. It looks like you've done this almost. Either you've hit a gold mine or, you know, you've got some special talent for it. I wouldn't say what you're doing is completely unrelated um, because it has to do with, uh, I know it's not child custody, it's preservation and reunification of families. But uh, you seem to have just stepped right into this and really are applying, if you look at the book, like really, uh, it's what I think what behavior analysis is, is supposed to be is data guided decisions, not just using sure. terms, but really guiding. So, you know, what do you say to that to all the people that want to work in something outside of autism? Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I usually have two responses, one of two responses, and it depends on whether I've had a nap or not. Mm -hmm. If I haven't had a nap, it's shut up and go to fucking do it. Mm -hmm. um, if I have had a nap and, you know, I've taught for 34 years and I got that question quite frequently, it's um, the world's your oyster. And mm -hmm. if you have some sort of passion or interest in an avenue of application, then um, think about the approximations that would enable you to immerse yourself in it. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you have no familiarity, for example, with child maltreatment, but gosh, that sounds like something you want to make a career out of, then what could you do to become immersed in it? You could probably go to a conference. You could start subscribing to some journals that present that kind of information. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there you can write a paper if you're still in school on, on uh, child maltreatment and, and behavioral approaches and so on. So, you know, I don't think that there should be anything that 
that stops anyone um, from sort of pursuing their passion. Um, but it really is how much are you passionate about it? If, if it's sort of an ancillary interest, that's one thing. And that's okay. You know, if you're kind of dedicated to a line of work that, that is maybe more traditional or familiar and you're quite happy with that, but you just want to kind of get educated a little bit about the diversity of the field, that that's one thing. But if you really want to pursue, um, a specialty application, then you're just going to have to immerse yourself in that series of approximations I mentioned and, and see where it takes you. You have to kind of follow your nose. Okay. Um, you know, in, in my particular case, it, it could have been anything to do with children. It, the, the irony, of course, is that the, the discipline as an application, that is ABA, um, was really founded by developmental behavioral psychologists, right? Beginning with Bijou and his colleagues mm -hmm. and disciples, the obvious three, um, they were all immersed in issues having to do with children. And I can't necessarily explain why the field um, narrowed a bit, you know, why the, the diversity of their interests don't seem and I could be wrong, but don't seem to be uh, reflected to the extent that they were some years ago. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. But it, it, it's it's useful to remember, I think, from time to time that, that the uh, pioneers of the field were all very much interested in children. Why not be, right? I mean, what's the the Mandela expression or something, it's its easier to nurture a child than to fix an adult, mm -hmm. <laughs> something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Well, of course. I mean, if you want to have a, a social impact, why wouldn't you be starting with children? Mm -hmm. So that's a long and tortured non-answer to your question. Well, I think I think that's good. It's just I would add to that from re, re, the book is Behavior Analysis, Metrics and Analysis for the Preservation and Reunification of Families is your application's um, is treating families, uh, right. not just children. Right. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, you're treating families for the benefit of children. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately the benefit you hope of their families. Um, but there has been sort of a long tradition and applied behavior analysis of what's called parent training. Mm -hmm. And, um, that usually has involved uh, a dyad. It's usually a mom and a child who's presenting the most problems. Um, and parent training often is conducted, not exclusively, but surprisingly often, I think, in, in a clinic, apart from the very setting that you ultimately want to have an impact on. Um, and as we got into it, dealing with some of the more challenging <laughs> folks you might come across mm -hmm. um, struggling with, with how to best raise their children. Um, we gradually realized that we had to do more than just sit down with a diet. We had to do more than just go in their home and sit down with a diet. Um, we had to get, we had to enlist all the folks, many of whom wanted to avoid us, you know, it could have been what Illinois called the paramour, the boyfriend, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it could have been the, the dad, the biological dad. It could have been grandma or uncle. And it certainly needed to involve the other kids because you can tweak how frequently a parent provides differential reinforcement to a particular child. But I ain't going to do jack mm-hmm. if you've got five other kids hanging off your, you know, your apron. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you better be dealing with the entire family. So. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the origin of that. I ran into that when I did work in autism. Of uh, you'd have some kind of program, but uh, the grandparents or the grandparents on one side were into it, and the other side weren't into it. So that's right. not that's not what you do. That's how you handle it, you know. And they were there a lot. And then what could you that's do? Cool. Uh, so I guess we need grandparents training now, but. Uh, well, you need family training. You know, that's yeah. a very interesting point you raised because I would visit the practicum sites of students, sites that I didn't have any administrative control over. And, and uh, I'm thinking here, particularly most recently in the last four or five years of, of teaching, that I'd see students in families' homes to work with a child with autism. And, you know, they're often be some sort of tabletop activity and and this, that, and the other. And the parent would be off to the side. It's kind of, you know, what's what I would try to get the student to ask themselves, what is happening the other 23 hours of the day when I'm not here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if you've left kind of the ecology of the child untouched, then, you know, you're only going to get so far, but uh, such as it is. Uh, what kind of challenges did you run into in your work setting with data collection? You mean in terms of uh, the resistance that families might have to it? or we I encountered a lot of that, and then are there other kind of practical barriers to doing good data collection in these settings? Well, there's certainly a lot of the technical or practical barriers um, of collecting data that would be useful and informative and meet the the expectations that we have for for good data, reliability, validity, and so on. Um, And so a lot of those technical issues have to be ironed out, but that's a, that's a doable thing if, if, if you've got the, the skill to do it. In terms of the difficulty we might have with families who might be intimidated by it, um, the practical the practical approach that we always had was to explain exactly what we were doing. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the data collection we did in the earlier days was with clipboards and pencils and paper and so on, and those, in some instances, got converted to apps back uh, toward the latter part of my involvement with the project, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's the families aware that you are observing and that you're recording things. And of course they're very much either interested or concerned with what it is you're doing. And so the most direct way of, of addressing any concern is to say, this is exactly what I'm looking at. And um, it will be informative with respect to our ability to provide good service to you. Um, and if there's anything you would like a copy of, we will provide it. So it's all being transparent and upfront, I think, that was important. Uh, in your, uh, so in your work, um, these are 
correct me if I'm wrong, but these have been referred by the court or mandated by the court to receive these services? And do you think that helped with the whole process? Yes and no. The, the, actually, the mandate came from the uh, Child Welfare Agency. Mm-hmm. That mandate might be echoed by the court. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the court might say, yeah, you need to cooperate with whatever the Child Welfare Agency says. And that agency was Department of Children and Family Services or DCFS in Illinois. So the court may say, hey, you need to do what DCFS says. And DCFS says, hey, family, you need to do what 12 ways says. Um, does that help? Yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the reality is that if somebody is been resistant to intervention by the child welfare system, they're not going to be any more inclined, at least out of the chute, um, to cooperate with us. Um, I mean, people sometimes get the impression, oh, you were ordered to do it, so therefore you got cooperation. These people have a history mm-hmm. yeah. of things. Screw you. <laughs> All <laughs> kinds of court orders they don't they don't comply with. So exactly. So I mean, there's nothing magic about the mandate to tell you the truth. And for many years, the reality is um, that despite that mandate, um, some family members, and it tended to be the the male adult father or boyfriend or whoever that avoided us, mm-hmm. you know, that would say, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to slip into the role because we did a lot of role playing with, with trainees or students back in the day. But, but dad would say, well, I don't have no problem with them kids. You know, I was right. I was raised, you know, to respect authority <laughs> and they twitch and tell us about their history of, uh, both being obedient as a child and getting compliance from the kids, and it's all her fault. But uh, mm-hmm. of course, that was rarely the case. Mm-hmm. Um, bottom line is, we had to enlist everybody, and that usually involved uh, a combination of being explicit about a the ramifications of cooperating and the ramifications of not cooperating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also meant sometimes selling ourselves by. Um, responding to the inevitable question from parents, particularly to our students, our graduate students, which was, well, how many kids do you have? (laughs) Um, Well, none. So they had to be prepared to respond to that. And the preparation that we gave to them was that I may not have any children. In fact, I was late in life having children. But I could tell parents, if I can show you something that works, then I'll expect you to, to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if it doesn't work, then tell me to fuck off. That's mm-hmm. fine. Got no problem with that. But if it works, we've got the expectation that, that you'll give it a shot too. The, the proof will end up being in the pudding then. It will be in the pudding. We hope some kind of pudding. Yeah. Um, what are critical family periods? Uh, and how does that relate to your work? Well, it's it's a term that that I coined. Of course, it's a derivative of the idea and developmental psychology of critical periods, right? And there are points in the development of a child that that are points of inflection, points of opportunity to really um, serve that child well in promoting their capacity for for adaptive behavior, and in a sense that 
idea extends to the family as a unit, that there are periods throughout the day where there are particular opportunities to um, make the most of being a family. And those also happen to be the periods that are most vulnerable to collapse, um, to neglect, and for things to go awry and result in, in mistreatment. Um, the child who doesn't go to bed when he's supposed to or isn't fed regularly um, and predictably or who is unsupervised during periods when you and I might have our children on our lap, um, then those are critical family periods that, mm -hmm. that if overlooked, will result in problems, mm -hmm. will result in harm. So it's, it's a two-edged sword. It can go either way. It can be a great time. It can be a great opportunity. It can be an enriching one, or it can be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many of our families, the structure of predictable child care occasions were, were often absent. You know, it, it was just, there was no circadian rhythm <laughs> to, to the day-to-day -day life of the, of the family. So, you know, a first order of business in many cases, not all, was to help them establish those critical family periods. Mm-hmm. It was always interesting, really, because you could go into a family's home where what you and I would consider to be a mealtime. And by mealtime, I don't just mean the, the period when you sit down at the chair and eat, eat food, but the preparation, the, mm -hmm. the arrangements, the, the cleanup and everything that goes with it, which could span, span several hours. You could often talk to a parent, particularly a mother, like, uh, oh, what would you like to see happen? Mm -hmm. If you could make, wave a magic wand between the hours of, say, 5 and 7 p.m., what would you, what, in your ideal world, would you like to see happen? And the words that first come out of their mouth, generally, tend to be, well, it sure would be nice if we could just sit down and then they stop. Oh, well, that's not going to happen. They interrupt themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and they go into, well, it's, gonna, it's just chaos. But you can see a glimmer of their desire to have mm -hmm. a little more, a little more uh, positive, positive opportunities and interaction with their children that uh, that they just have have given up on if they ever ever had it in the first place. So that's probably a longer answer to what you wanted to know about well, family. Peace. No, that's good. Is that what? the old psychologist would call the learned helplessness. It's just their situation has made them like, you know, okay, that's not going to work. Forget it. So they don't even implement anything. Yeah. Learned helplessness. It kind of pervades a lot of the, the repertoire of our families mm -hmm. <laughs> or eliminates the repertoire, I guess you could say. Uh, in these, in cases where children are separated from the family is the goal always to return them home and just okay big picture when should when should parental rights or bigger question when should parental rights be terminated yeah well good question um i mean our uh, catchment population if you will the population that we were by the terms of our contract bound to serve were in fact families where the goal was either to keep them intact the kids were, you know, still at home, but they were uh, teetering on on removing them, 
um, or the kids, in fact, had been removed and placed into foster care, yet the goal was to return the child. Society's preference is usually, of course, to, to keep families intact. Um, we don't like to use the foster care system if we don't have to. We don't like to terminate parental rights if we don't have to. Parents own their kids, much like we own property. I mean, that's the heritage of the whole mm-hmm. child welfare system. And so generally the goal is going to be, except for in extreme circumstances, to uh, keep the family intact or to reunite them if they're not intact. And that was our mandate. Now, there is a population that we did not have contact with, which might be the population of, of cases where the harm that's been inflicted on a child is so egregious and so severe that there's no consideration whatsoever with with uh with reunification um there could be a death for example Mm -hmm. um or there could be some so egregious act that that the the state's going to move right away towards termination but those are rare cases really Mm -hmm. um you, you hear about them in the news um and some of those in point of fact where you think there's going to be a direct move for termination it doesn't really happen um, but the ones that do are, you know, one that comes to mind is where a family left a, uh, a group of, I think it was three kids, all below the age of eight or nine, and the mom and dad went on a 10-day holiday to Hawaii and left the, <laughs> left the group. See ya. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll be back. But the nine-year-old, real good kid, he can probably handle it. You know, when that, that gets discovered, there's not going to be a whole lot of consideration probably for... Um, trying to keep that family intact. They're gonna move for, for termination of per, parental rights pretty quickly. But a lot of cases would surprise you that, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, the district or the, the prosecuting attorney might come on TV, yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna resolve this with termination and so on, but it tends to morph into something less than that. Mm-hmm. The other kinds of cases sometimes that are directly uh, uh, likely to to be considered for for termination of parental rights or ones involving severe sexual exploitation you know our society is very touchy about matters having to do with with mm-hmm. sexual encounters between children and adults um and if there's been some particularly egregious exploitation um then you might see an attempt to terminate early. And those are more likely to be the cases that are considered for criminal prosecution. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the cases that have to do with child abuse and neglect, students were often surprised your run of the mill abuse and neglect is not a crime. <laughs> it's a civil infraction. Mm-hmm. It's not a criminal infraction. Mm-hmm. The cases are heard most of them in a juvenile court, which is mm-hmm. a civil court, not a criminal court. But uh, egregious kinds of uh, acts of sexual exploitation often get pursued more along the criminal lines. Mm-hmm. It's a tough case to make, but those are the kinds that are more likely to be pursued criminally. You know, since uh, the the children are owned by their parents, in fact, and if there is a termination, then they are owned by the state, right? They become a ward of the state. Right, uh, with the hope of some sort of more permanent arrangement, meaning a more family-like arrangement, adoption, uh-huh. uh, 
Um, but in the interim, there's going to be, yeah, if the, the, the rights of the parent are terminated, it may mean a protracted period of foster care um, for, the, for the child. I'm just wondering if that's like part of the reason the, the state is not necessarily very keen on terminating parental rights because then they become the owners and are then responsible until they can pass it on to somebody else. Well, very true. I mean, it's it's kind of two sides of the same coin. You want to see the family of origin survive if it can. Mm-hmm. And you certainly don't want to assume the responsibility for raising a child outside of a family. So if it does become necessary to terminate parental rights, then, you know, the, the first move will be to see some sort of uh, adoptive arrangement can be can be established. Mm-hmm. So uh, in in the book, there's numerous, uh, I can't even list them all, but they have instruments uh, to help you in your work, if I'm using the right term, instruments. And sure. I think uh, my favorite, now because my memory is not that good, I got to go to it, but my favorite is the Clean Checklist okay. of Living Environments to Assess Neglect. So if, do you have, I don't know, examples or stuff you can just make up about the use of something like that and how it could be helpful in your work? Well, a lot of our families um, had uh, an allegation, which ultimately was substantiated, um, of what the state of Illinois called environmental neglect, right? Which means if you were to walk into that home, you'd say, oh, God, (laughs) find me a hard chair if I have to sit down. (laughs) <laughs> we used to talk about hard chair <laughs> I've, seen those, chair, I've seen those kind of places and then they were and sometimes staff they were giving them some kind of a plastic thing so you could sit down uh, yeah, you would apply right. it to wherever you know the no couches were good apply that plastic yeah. thing and you sit on that that's right we would occasionally provide our staff you know they pack in the back of the car a trunk of the car a, a you know a fold out stool of some sort to, to sit on um, because it wasn't a pleasant place to be. And, and uh, you know, this was one of our early instruments to develop um, because we were seeing so many environmental neglect cases. And the, uh, the conditions that we were trying to tap through the development of this instrument were uh, the, the utter filth, you know, and by filth, I mean... Uh, what we ended up calling organic decaying organic matter, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which could be, you know, last month's eggs on the floor. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, trash spilling all over into the, into the room and so on, you know, uh, and another dimension of that was um, just the accumulation of, of, items that you know laundry i want that's a generous word it was just cloth and clothing and piles and piles of refuse that um could literally block your ability to move from one room Mm -hmm. to another um so that was another dimension of this this protocol the claim and then there were items that that uh that it's not that they were inherently harmful but added to the clutter and we called them items that 
that appeared to be out of place. And so these might be things that you wouldn't typically encounter in a particular location and just added to the clutter. But that's that's a bit of a judgment. So we would have to ask families, well, you know, I, I noticed you have a carburetor on the kitchen table. Uh-huh. Is this normally where you keep it? Uh-huh. <laughs> and if the answer is yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Otherwise it, it contributes to the to the weight of this index, the clean index as an item that's out of place. So across those three dimensions of the instrument, we were usually able to capture, you know, the the extreme conditions that that led the family to have this charge of environmental neglect. One of the things that sometimes when I would talk about this to various groups, they would always point out, oh, well, you know, I've got kid, uh, some dishes on the side of the sink, or I've got this, that, and the other. Um, and so we ended up looking at some normative data, if you will. We looked at families who don't have a history of environmental neglect and families who are dirt poor but don't have a history of environmental neglect. And we could find differences along this metric in the abundance of, of filth and items out of place and so on. So it's, it's not just the, the casual, you know, neglect of, of doing the dishes for a couple of days. It's yeah. more extreme than that. And we were able to, to demonstrate that our instrument was sensitive to those differences. Yeah, that's what I found interesting about it is some flexibility was inherent in the instrument, but you could, from the clean, you could still use it to uh, address certain behaviors or certain environmental features that you could work on with the family. Right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it, it usually was uh, an incremental process to get them to work on it. I mean, it's not like you would say, hey, you know, next time I come, I'd like to see all this cleaned up. <laughs> Good luck with that. But you could identify an area and set a goal with the family. Um, let, let's just look at the, the countertop to the right of the sink. And, you know, can we address that by next week? Mm-hmm. And so you could take it incrementally. And, and I think one of the keys, too, was that in order to get folks to make incremental changes, um, you know, you, you always, I think in any area of application with behavior analysis, you always want to be careful about the nature of the reinforcers you're using. If, if you're using reinforcers that require you to be there to deliver them, then what happens when you're not there anymore? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we could give parents tokens or whatever the hell we wanted to give them to try to pay off their efforts to clean the place. But it'd be much better if we could get their cleaning efforts under the control of reinforcers that are likely to remain with them. Um, I would always try to get our staff, for example, to explore the extent to which the parents really would like to have the pleasure of the company of others. You know, is there anybody in their neighborhood in the trailer park or whatever the hell it is that they are friends with and would like to have more contact with them? And if so, I wonder if we could get mom, dad to think about, hey, if they clean this area, they could invite the Smiths over for tea mm-hmm. or coffee or, you know, cocaine or whatever that was going to be. Um, 
so that the reinforcement would be, if you will, intrinsic or indigenous to the environment and not just depend on us. And that sounds so simple. That sounds so basic. <laughs> yeah. It's so simple, yes, exactly. Yeah. Doesn't it sound yeah. yeah, the textbooks say you're supposed to do that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it, it sounds like a lot of doable stuff in an right. environment, which is kind of... Um, I think most of the behavior analysts, when they're idealistic, is they're looking for that kind of thing. Like, I could just come in and do this um, and see if it can help. And if that doesn't work, then we'll try something else. Right. Um, You had spoken in the book about the use of task analyses and also checklists, things like that. Do you have examples of how that's been useful in your work? Sure. Um, on the task analysis side, a lot of that really would uh, probably target um, uh, young parents, new parents, mm-hmm. the, the, the young mother and our father that has a new baby and frankly is clueless with respect to preparing a bottle to feed. Um, clueless with respect to changing diapers um, and so on. And, and so you could outline the steps that one needed to follow to have a successful diapering episode and, and uh, so on. And those, those uh, task analyses provided both the basis for measurement and for training. I mean, sometimes they were one and the same. Sometimes if you had a capable parent you could say here's the check uh, here's the items on my task analysis that i'm checking off and if you just follow those you'll do a good job of diapering them more often though they they needed some um uh, simpler version of that and it could be in pictures um uh, or what have you it didn't necessarily have to be this 12-step task analysis that was written on a data sheet Mm -hmm. so that that was often a use of the task analysis and other checklists were um sort of akin to task analysis it would be a matter of saying okay you you you've said you would like to see the family all be able to sit down and have a meal that hasn't happened in their lifetime we're going to try to make that happen Mm -hmm. let's see what do we have to do what are the key features of a meal time together, who does what, when, where, how, mm-hmm. um, and all the family members are sort of involved in the creation of these steps. Um, and in many instances, I re- would recall that um, the steps often required that fathers be enlisted, mm-hmm. um, which was not necessarily a custom in the home. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if whether dad work or not, whether there was employment or not, many dads would often say, well, that's not my job, you mm-hmm. know, okay. but if you've got, gee, I have one child and it took both of us mm-hmm. to be able to organize uh, a mealtime routine and everybody kind of had a role. And so it might be, okay, somebody's going to take two of the kids and guide them through setting the table. And the other person's going to be with the other child stirring food on the stove and you know and then somebody's going to set the uh bring the food off the the table and and or off the stove and put it on the table and then another 
uh, group is going to at, at the meals in pick up the dishes and take them to the sink and so on. And literally spelling those things out was was kind of the the skeleton, if you will, of establishing the critical family period. Same thing with me, uh, uh, bath times. Mm-hmm. Well, who's going to do what? You know, mm-hmm. you've got a bunch of kids and you got to bathe them. Well, how the hell is that going to work? You know, who's going to do what at these times? Who's going to supervise the kids that aren't being bathed and so on? So it was really working out the the uh, the steps. They weren't always in that successive fashion that you would expect of a TA, but they just characterized whatever that critical family period should be, look like. Um, and that had to be worked out with the family itself. I mean, you can't go in and say, okay, this is what you need to do. You can go in and know that certain things need to be done, Mm -hmm. but it would be a mistake to say, this is what you need to do. I've thought about it. So, you know, here's my prescription. You, you work those out in concert, of course, with, with the family members themselves. And that's always the adults and sometimes includes the kids, um, depending on how old they are. There's a negotiation process to something like this? Negotiation process. Yeah. I mean, you know certain things can't be overlooked. They're non-negotiable. Right. Uh, like kids have to eat. <laughs> but a, a lot of the way we might go about it could be negotiated. Mm-hmm. And you also have times in the course of that of changing other facets of the family's relationship with one another. Right. You know, so I think I mentioned a case where a dad nice guy um had had difficulties with a couple of the children who weren't his biological children and he was impatient with them and he um had physically abused them and so on um and we knew the periods of the day when this happened and a lot of it happened around meal times and towards after meal times during bed and so on and if you looked at him closely he was much more in comfortable physical contact with his own biological child than he was with these children that mm-hmm. technically were his wives and he was the stepfather to and it was kind of like well you know it would be nice if he had some sort of gentle physical interaction with them now we could have put on the 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 the, the task analysis or the steps, if you will, of the checklist, dad should have considerate, sensitive, physical interaction with kids. But a little more of sort of a Todd Risley idea would be, hmm, how do we create the occasion to make it likely that that physical interaction will occur? And so one of the things that he agreed to do without even realizing that this would involve physical interaction was to supervise all the kids at mealtime around the uh, washing of their hands, you know, and inspecting, making sure that their hands were clean. And so his stepchildren would, would wash their hands and he'd help them. And he's making gentle contact in the course of doing that. And then they would hold out his hands. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dad, did I do it? You know, did I get clean? Yeah, let me see this side. Oh, let me see that side. Well, what do you know? That's what we want to see, mm-hmm. right? That's far infinitely better than saying, okay, there shall be gentle physical contact. Make sure you freaking do it, Dad. Mm-hmm. It's just, hey, make sure that the kids wash their hands thoroughly, you know, assist them and picking up this, that, and the other after the meal, and physical contact will occur. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, well, it kind of goes along. If you want 
you want behaviors to be reinforced, you got to set up a situation where there is reinforcement. So we want to reinforce dad for doing well with the kids, physical contact. We want to reinforce the kids washing their hands. A right. scenario like that sets up both. Right. You want to get them, if you will, we used to call it a reinforcement trap, right? Mm-hmm. Back in the day, everybody kind of reinforces everyone else's behavior. And it's unwitting by and large. It's nobody's particularly cognizant that it's happening, which is great. I mean, yeah. that's what we call a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Um, chapter 13 had, uh, this was interesting about protecting children from lures. Like you had conf- confederates pretending to be the kind of people that would abduct children. So it's basically making children less prone to a certain kinds of crime, which I find very right. interesting. Can you talk right. about that a little bit? Well, actually, the protocol for that, I mean, we, we wanted kids to be able to resist lures, you mm-hmm. know, the, and lures can come in, in different flavors. It might be, oh, you know, your mom is 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 told me to come get you um, mm-hmm. and hurry. You got to go with me because she needs your help. Or it could be, hey, I can't find my dog. He was over here a minute ago. Can he help me mm-hmm. look? Or um, there are lots of variations of lures and most of that. Um, work was originally done by Cheryl Pache at, at Western Michigan mm-hmm. um, some years ago. And so our protocols were really an adoption and an adaptation of, of that. Um, so we would, and it turns out our kids are particularly vulnerable, I think, to lures because adult attention is something that they lack so mm-hmm. much and, and are, are particularly amenable or vulnerable to to exploitation because of that. And so, um, yeah, we would stage um, uh, uh, an environment where the opportunity to lure the child could could be undertaken. And, you know, usually we had to work that out in concert um, with the local police (laughs) because sometimes we would attempt to lure kids off the playgrounds. who might see what's going on, <laughs> call us in. Yeah. So we would, you know, make contact with the police and say, Hey, this is what we're up to. So if you yeah. get a call, um, you know, here's a number you can call back and make sure it's us. Too many concerned um, citizens out there. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, they're just, they're just, it's just so easy to lure a child. I, in fact, so easy. I used to tell students that, that I would give them a test, you know, uh, that if, if they could lure a child successfully, they could stay in graduate school, but if they couldn't, they needed to find another career <laughs> because I mean, clearly <laughs> if you can't get a kid to go with you, what, what kind of person are you? Yeah. 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 You, yeah. You're not a people person if you can't even do that. Yeah, so and not a child person for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just too easy. Um, um, but that was the protocol. And there are a lot of ways to train kids then but you're always then probing to ascertain whether your training has been successful or not on the podcast we've uh we've covered domestic violence and a couple couple different guests you had the care protocol to uh well uh for domestic prevention of amelioration of domestic violence cases what can you tell us about that well i mean uh, as you 
no doubt no there's just a lot of different facets to domestic violence but um one of the things that we wanted to try to do was was sort of inoculate our victims um women uh-huh. particularly i mean sometimes men who are, are victims of domestic violence too at the hands of their their female uh, paramour or wife or whatever but um more often than not, it's males perpetrating violence against the females. And one of the things that we came to appreciate was that, um, number one, the, that there tends to be sort of a very, it, it, there's, there's an issue of stimulus control. Mm-hmm. That not every, every man has the same appeal to everyone. <laughs> as I discovered in my own life. Um, but there, there seems to be a type, you know, for every different female um, that just, you know, hits the button. Mm-hmm. And God knows what it is that some of these guys have that is so charming. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a vulnerability, if you will, um, that is that is just not the full range of things. I, I could... Uh, you know, sometimes this went hand in hand with what we called assertiveness training. And, and, um, we would sometimes, um, attempt to determine the extent to which particularly females could stand their ground mm-hmm. when it came to a mo- moment of exploitation. And so, um, one of the arrangements we had to test that was we would sometimes feign uh, a breakdown of an automobile out in front of their house or okay. their apartment or wherever they were living. The guy who they did not know would knock on the door and say, gee, I need to come in and, and use your phone and, and essentially not take no for an answer. Uh-huh. Um, unless it was really a damn good no. Um, and so we would train um, these women how to resist the the insistence of the of these males and what we found in the course of doing that is that some guys were good at it and some guys weren't some guys could push the button some guys wouldn't i had an oriental student for example she says well (laughs) and she was female she says dr green i i tested i tested miss smith and and i knock on her door i say i need your beer please and she would not let me in she does not need training (laughs) sweetheart let me show you how you get get into her house. Um, but coming back specifically to the domestic violence, it's the same sort of thing is that there seem to be for each different person, uh, vectors of exploitation that the guys could use. And sometimes it was charm, whatever that looked like. And sometimes it was bullying. Uh-huh. Um, and so we would role play extensively the, extent to which the women could stand their ground and not be swept away um, by these by these males and and these fell into to different categories you know they could be vulnerable to, to emotional exploitation to financial exploitation mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so we would categorize these and develop a scale based on those categories but in order to ultimately in order to to serve these families what we found was you got to do a lot more than just counsel them as is the case at the women's center or something where they may have gone to 
got to do a, a hell of a lot more than counsel them because they're going to go back to this guy. Mm-hmm. Think about what their opportunities in life are. Well, they don't have a job. Oh, okay. So they're dependent on somebody else for an income. Maybe this guy. They don't have any other social context. Oh, so we have to help create those, right? Do you know um, a sewing group, a church group, or whatever it might be that we can bring them into contact to replace this doofus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're probably going to need assistance procuring a job, right? Um, they're probably going to need to get a, an order of protection. All of them say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get an order of protection. Well, they don't. Uh-huh. So you kind of have to take them by the hand. Let's get an order of protection. And then you have to teach them how to, to exercise it when the moment comes. You probably have to teach them as well some emergency procedures when, when you know, good old Joe comes knocking on the door. Um, so there's a whole host of, of things to consider. The protocol we we talked about in the book is really the one that just uh, uh, attempts to quantify, if you will, or assess their vulnerability to to domestic violence. And and their scores tend to improve. They, that is, they become less vulnerable to the extent that we do all those things that I described, getting the order of protection, getting an opportunity for for employment. Transportation is a big one, not being dependent on this prima donna for transportation mm-hmm. and so on. So you really have to kind of build the support system that most of us have as a matter of <laughs> our daily lives, but you have to kind of build it piece by piece for these, um, for these women in order for them to get out of the, the DV trap. And it's nice if you can find a boyfriend who's not a prick. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you can do that, then yeah. Well, uh, I, I had covered before, I believe it's the Bell and Noggle 2000-something. It was an article about domestic violence and behavioral economics, which I thought uh-huh. if, there, if there's, you know, any... When I read that article, I was like, if there's any good point to it, it's a good explanation of, okay, yeah, you want to get out of it, but what happens when you get out of it? You know, do you have right. a place to live? Do you have, right. uh, are you getting, are you getting bad feedback from your own family members if you've ended the marriage? You know, what, what are the economics of this? And that is a, that's, right. that's a good explanation of that problem they have with getting people to leave bad guys. Yeah. You've got to have the resources and you have to have the repertoire to exercise those resources. So it's, uh, it's not just a simple matter of, you know, uh, counseling on the on the on the couch there at the, at the women's center there's a lot more involved in it. otherwise you can just about guarantee she's going back for this guy and yeah. if not this guy one that looks an awful lot like him yeah <laughs> yeah it'll be a replacement of the same thing and that's the phenomenon exactly. that they see so in, in domestic violence work so um the use of uh, the behavior analytic metrics uh you did some work on that for visitation uh requirements on like data collection and visitation. Uh, Do you recall that? Can you tell us about that? It was a very interesting part of the book, I thought. Um, Well, it it is interesting more so here recently. I I know you've got the the criminal um, criminology, criminal justice background. I've uh, joined a listserv here recently and and uh after we're we're done I, i'll give you a link to it if you're okay. not already kind of on this list or but it's mostly uh 
populated by folks who are either in psychology or law or both. Mm-hmm. And they do things like competency assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found that kind of interesting because they do talk quite a bit about uh, the process they use to ascertain whether somebody is is competent, whether it be to, you know, uh, remain uh, a parent or competent to stay on trial or uh, uh-huh. many facets of competency. And I've been struck by this idea that somehow you can use an instrument to ascertain whether the parent is going to be competent or not. Uh-huh. When I don't really think that's the case. I think you have to use a process to uh-huh. determine that. Uh-huh. And that that process also needs to include um, opportunities to extend their competence, (laughs) to develop their competence. Um, And so that's sort of what the visitation protocol was about, is that when we had families that were um, separated, that the children were placed in the foster care, and yet there was the hope and the goal by the child welfare system to return the child to parental custody if possible. Um, rather than sort of do some sort of psychological assessment and and parents would have had that as well. We wanted to to reintroduce them to the responsibilities of parenthood um, through a progressive process of visiting with our kids during critical family periods to see if we couldn't develop greater parental and family capacity to, to, uh, establish, sustain, and enjoy those critical family periods to identify the things that that might pop up that would preclude us from trying to push this whole visit towards reunification process that would be a red flag, you know, that would tell us, eh, you can't go any further mm-hmm. or, yeah, you can, you know. And so it was the idea was to arrange for an incremental process of spending greater time with the kids, spending more time during critical periods, spending more time um, in the context that was present when the kids were removed from parental custody in the first place. So for example, I think we gave a, a case where mom lost custody of her children and was living with uh, a boyfriend who had nothing to do with her loss of the children. He wasn't in the scene at the time that she lost her children. She had lost her children while with another man. Uh-huh. Well, doesn't matter because guess what? He's, these kids are coming home to her and this new guy. Uh-huh. So he has to be part of the scene. Right. And you, you would be reasonably concerned that the th- events that led to the kids' removal that involved mom and the prior boyfriend or father might reemerge <laughs> mm-hmm. with this new guy. So the, you know, the plan might be let's increase visits progressively contingent on mom being able to reach certain expectations at various points along the line, but also contingent on him being able to do so. Mm-hmm. And in the case, I think I reported in the book that dad was not cooperative or mm-hmm. excuse me, he wasn't the dad. That man was not cooperative. Mm-hmm. Hey, my kids. And, you know, this is my house and what I say goes. 
And we did everything we could to charm and persuade the guy to show up and be present for visits so we could assess the entire family. He refused to do so. And when it got to the point of us making a recommendation, do we go any further? Mom has had a series of supervised visits, and she may have even had some time unsupervised. But to go any further would mean leaving the kids, perhaps even overnight when he would be there. I don't want any part of it. I'm not going to recommend that that happen. I don't want any part of it. We've hit a a, a, a block. You know, this is this is a red flag. Mm-hmm. This is just what the functional assessment people do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like here's the problem. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, we stopped, and you know, the case kind of has its own life after us. And counselors took over, and this, that, and the other. And ultimately, the family was reunited. And ultimately, he hurt the kids. Uh huh. Hello. Yeah. Hello. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Who yeah. knew? <laughs> yeah, you had some indication there, pretty strong. Yeah, it's an indication, right? And and very much under the same circumstances that that the the mother and the biological father father had harmed the kids in the first place. You know, it was almost like deja vu all over again. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure, um, there's been legal action taken about uh, allowing. Uh, parents separated from their children visitation time uh yeah. you mentioned that in the book that uh they say okay you know and, and it the description of it it seemed pretty uh seemed pretty loose how they would handle it about allowing visitation they say, well we schedule it and then they might not show up it's, it's a pretty important thing but but you were involved in showing i don't know the, the need for visitation and in a way to make it a good system to get to get visitation well yeah of course through 12 ways um through our work with our families visitation was a cornerstone it was a it was the period during which you could you could shape on the on the family's um capacity to get along with one another on a broader scale the state of illinois had problems with meeting the letter of the law in other words when when children are placed in the foster care it it usually is going to be the case that the hope and the uh, expectation will be to reunite them at some point that there should be some sort of effort to do so and visitation is a key to doing that right that you don't want people to lose contact with one another that parents should be able to see their kids and vice versa on some regular basis if we're doing it if we're managing it there at SIU we want that that to be a progressively extended period of opportunity. Um, But at a minimum, the law required in Illinois, as it does in most states, some sort of minimal expectation, which starts off typically at once a week. They'll have a visit once a week, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's some discretion about whether that visit will be supervised or unsupervised and what have you. But the state wasn't doing that. The state of Illinois was failing to meet its minimal obligations. Um, and so because of the work that I'd been doing at SIU, um, or I should say before that, that because of the, the state's failure to provide adequate opportunity for visits, the, the state was sued in a class action suit, a federal class action suit. Um, and um, the court found in favor of the parents that yes, 
You know, you have been denied the, the opportunity to visit your kids on the schedule that the department itself says they should be visiting, mm-hmm. which is typically once a week or and can be more or less, but typically once a week. So <laughs> um, to make a, uh, a long story short, I think the, the department and the court realized we really don't know how badly we're failing. <laughs> You know, we know everybody's not getting the visits, but we don't know how badly we're failing and whether failure in one region is greater than another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know why they might be failing. And so the, the role I had with the court um, through an appointment as what they called a special master was to look at cases statewide to ascertain the extent to which the department was fulfilling or failing to fulfill its obligation to provide reasonable opportunities for visitation. And so that, yeah, I, I did that, surveyed active cases throughout the state um, and correlated that. I mean, there's a graph that I think speaks to most of the reason why why visitation is, is lacking in so many instances is that the, there's a terrible supervision. Mm-hmm. Now, caseworkers are freelancing a great deal and if they are meeting with supervisors to get input it's sort of an amorphous uh informal kind of supervision Mm -hmm. you know if i'm the supervisor i would think if you're the supervisor and you're sitting down with a caseworker and you know that there's supposed to have been a visit you're going to say hey did you have a visit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) was there a visit okay so we're going to say oh yeah well yeah well why not well, because, you know, I haven't heard from mom, really. What effort have you made to contact mom? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I, I mean, you know, if, if supervision is as willy-nilly as it was, um, then you could expect there's going to be some erosion and the extent to which the, the expectation for regular supervision is going to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's exactly you know, that's exactly what we found. Uh, I don't know what has happened in that case since, but <laughs> I would not be surprised if it hasn't changed a whole lot. <laughs> when they ask a question like uh, to collect data on how bad we're failing and the answer is we don't know, that right there is kind of a bad sign, isn't it? So That's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. We can't tell you in numbers. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think things kind of came to a head. <laughs> in a rather flagrant way during that time period that a caseworker had documented a series of visits, you know, week after week after week after week. <laughs> and I don't know what caused somebody to look into it, but apparently the documentation was forged because the child oh. had died <laughs> oh. some weeks earlier. Yeah. I think we got a problem here yeah. with supervision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the importance yeah. of data collection. It can reveal so many important things when you really look into it, if it's real. Yeah. So, where was the oversight? <laughs> yeah, the the real re- revealing the truth about the oversight. Um, as far as uh, training for for staff for workers in these areas, you you wrote the true uh, litmus the true litmus test, if I say it right, of competency based training. Uh, what would that be, the true litmus test of competency-based training? 
Well, as you probably know, the word or the term competency-based training gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And it sort of implies that you're going to get some training, and by virtue of that, you're going to be competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of competent to do what? To answer questions on a quiz? Right. Um, so for us, competency-based training was of our staff was measured by the extent to which they could make contact with families presenting all kinds of difficulties and follow the particular protocol that we put into place skillfully um, and, you know, in, in, in a real life situation, not just in a classroom, although we might do some classroom training, not just on, on a quiz, although we would quiz, but could they execute the steps that we ultimately expected them to execute by virtue of, of, of their training and by virtue of their service on the project. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not a complicated idea, but it does tend to be one that, you know, particularly the non-behavioral world uh, doesn't seem to be as sensitive to as, as they might. Yeah, we got to actually be able to see them doing it. Uh, perform. Yeah, yeah, to see the actual performance, to say that they're competent. Right. That's right. I mean, you should be able to come away with a score under of, of performance under the actual conditions under which that performance is expected. Um, and, and that's the key. And it's it's simple. You know, uh, a colleague, buddy of mine, Denny Reed, does a lot of training of, of folks with uh, who are serving individuals with developmental disabilities. And it's the same thing. You know, you, you can you can get people to answer quiz questions about what training should look like pretty well. You can get them to role play often pretty well. That's another step. But do they execute it with fidelity mm-hmm. when when push comes to shove, when they're actually on the job? Um, so this, the idea is the same. Yeah. Um, quickly here... Uh... What is micro lending? And uh, it was, I think, it was, so it's an economist, Muhammad Yunus. Um, Yunus. Yunus, yeah. Yeah. Micro lending and micro labor. Yeah. Well, it's an undeveloped uh, micro lending is a developed concept. Micro labor isn't. <laughs> uh-huh. I just kind of stole it. Uh-huh. Uh, but Muhammad Yunus, uh, I'm forgetting the title of this book right now. Um, won a Nobel Prize in economics some years back. Mm-hmm. And what he did, he, he, he uh, uh, in places like Bangladesh and so on, where, you know, you have this immense poverty and people just unable to produce an income to thrive and so on. Um, he found that, you know, the bankers and these uh cities and countries were unwilling to to lend any money to anybody that Mm -hmm. didn't have a good credit history and didn't want to borrow large sums of money um so Eunice came up with this idea well we could just lend them a little teeny bit Mm -hmm. you know and the teeny bit would be tied to their desire to go purchase some material to make you know they're going to make bamboo chairs they need to get the material to make the chairs. Mm-hmm. And when they do, they'll make the chairs and sell it, and then they can pay back the loan. You know, so this would this transaction was small, and it would take place in a very limited time frame. And they pay back, and then they could borrow a little more, 
and make a larger production and they come back and make a little more. Um, and it was hugely successful. It's what got him the Nobel Prize. Okay. You know, this idea of micro lending, mm-hmm. um, not mega lending like his, his sort of the corporate bank practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I look at our families, the vast majority really are, are not employed. I mean, they don't show up on the Bureau of Labor Statistics because you're not considered unemployed unless you're looking for a job and don't have one. But if you don't have one and you're not looking, you're not unemployed. <laughs> you don't show up. I don't know if everybody knows that, but they should. Um, and so our, many of our families would not be considered unemployed because, yes, they're not working. But no, they're not looking for a job. When they list the unemployed, that's the people looking for jobs. That's right. Yeah, you, you're jobless, but you have to be, you know, out looking for one. Uh-huh. That's what caused you counts you as unemployed. Uh-huh. Ours just don't fill fill that agenda because they're not looking for work, and yet they're in a home. Typically, they might be watching TV for protracted hours. They might be sleeping it might be smoking cigarettes and i you know i don't think it's an ideological alignment with with some sort of uh, party some some mm-hmm. political party but i i think people benefit if their behavior is productive during a period of, of the day and productivity doesn't necessarily mean as it does to you and i going to a, a, a job location but it can it can mean that um, and, you know, I just wondered how we could enable so, some of our folks to have become, if you will, institutionalized mm-hmm. in a period of, of just sedentary day-to-day life, whether they could engage in some more enriching activity, something that would be useful to them, um, and that would pay them something. Mm-hmm without jeopardizing whatever source of welfare they might be getting, mm-hmm. right? So we had um, occasion to look at a small group of folks that uh, that we interviewed. We'd ask them, is there, you know, do you have any talent? Do you have any hobby? Is there anything you would like to do if you weren't going to sacrifice your public assistance? Is there anything that you can think of. And some folks said, yeah, you know, I used to work at such and such place. I'd like to get back to doing that. Others didn't have anything, but they say, you know, I love to make, I love to arrange flowers. So we looked at any sort of productive kind of activity that might be done, determine what the obstacles to doing those things were, whether it was lack of material or lack of money to get the material or lack of transportation to get to the job site and went through a problem solving process. Okay, what's the what's the first thing we need to do to get you there? Um, oh, I got to get my car fixed. Oh, okay. Can you get your car fixed at the shop next week? No, I don't have the money. Oh, okay, we got to do. So it was a, you know, could be a protracted problem solving process, but the ultimate idea was simply to engage these adults in some sort of activity that produced something. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were willing to pay them. We were willing to assist them. Um, and the interesting thing anecdotally was that the kids would begin talking about their parents' job, you know, mm-hmm. which 
which had never happened. Yeah, my dad's got to go to work today. You know, and they would say that kind of proudly. Mm-hmm. So you, you, the impact of people just kind of atroph- becoming atrophied. <laughs> is that a word? Atrophy? Um, is it a verb? Uh, it is now, uh, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, just just that that lifestyle. I mean, what it does to to children mm-hmm. um, who are sort of witness to that is kind of hard to. It's hard. To, I don't have the metric for that, um, but it's an intergenerational um, epidemic. I mean, it, it, it it's it's horrible to see. I'm even fascinated. You know, there's been some recent as you probably no doubt appreciate some effort by the Biden administration to uh, provide various forms of assistance and so on. And I think the, the, the phrase I've heard recently is that we, you know, by virtue of this bill, 40 million children will be lifted out of poverty, mm-hmm. you know, because some subsistence has been increased. That's, you know, th- that just strikes me as so, unusual of a phrase because that's not what poverty looks like right poverty looks like this atrophy that you see Mm -hmm. among family members day in and day out Mm -hmm. um and yeah throw some more cash at it well great but that doesn't change the lifestyle yeah well the standard welfare system the the contingency is that you be poor uh, effectively that you not get above this certain level and then we'll keep right. paying you if you don't. And you're not going to do anything to get skills that would get you above that level because right. uh, then you'd, you'd lose the benefits that they give you instead of reinforcing right. learning these skills that would not require you, that would mean that you wouldn't require that public assistance in the first place. Right, right. I mean, it's a tough problem. It oh. really is a tough problem. I wish I could have spent more time on it. But... Mm-hmm. Is what it is. Yeah. Great job. So you've been at this a while. I can tell that this is this book is uh, this is volume one. Are there going to be other volumes? Uh, I've considered it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm wanting to see how this one flies. You know, the interest has been modest. That doesn't inspire me to do volume two. But if I were to, it would be. You know, we've we've done a a number of things in schools and in daycare and in group homes and so on mm-hmm. with kids. So that would be the, the thrust of a volume two if I live long enough to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you can get online and, and become uh, like us potophiles and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, potomaniacs. We'll call us pot. I like, <laughs> I like the sound of that better. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, each one has an edge to it, but yeah, yeah, I yeah. can see where it might want to go with Potomania. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a slight uh, winner for that one. Uh, that's yeah. kind of the main things that we, I I really appreciate it. Uh, I like the flexibility in, in some of your work. Like, I, I just uh, I really think behavior analysis needs more of this kind of. Okay, we're going to get this to work this way, or we'll try to. I mean, it's really open to being flexible, uh, at least compared to what I've seen in a lot of behavior and like, we're just going to do this. Pro- it's supposed to be a very flexible thing, but in reality, I don't see a lot of that except in your work. Oh, thank you. Entirely welcome. Um, 
I don't know. I, I sure hope this video recording goes somewhere. We'll, we'll find out. I'm going <laughs> to pause it and uh, I hope to have it. Do you have anything else that you want to say um, about your work? It's all very interesting. I'll just kind of give it to you. And No, I appreciate your interest and uh, and I guess could leave it at that, really. Okay. It's great work. It's it's uh, Brandon Green, uh, Behavior Analytic Metrics and Applications for the Preservation and Reunification of Families. Short, The short is BAMA, right? You know, B-A-M-A. Yeah, no, roll time, baby. Roll time. Yeah, BAMA. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. Maybe we can talk okay. in the future. Thanks for your interest, Tim. All we'll right. See you. All right. Bye-bye. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. <laughs>